0: I see people. They look like trees walking around. So once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on into the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, Jesus asked them, Who do people say that I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Ah, But who do you say that I am? He asked. Peter answered, You are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. For you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And he called the crowd along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Good morning. It's certainly a blessing to be with you all once again. Uh, And I I will say, since this will be the the last time they'll have the opportunity to come and worship with you, for the foreseeable future anyway, I want to say what a blessing it has been for me to be able to come and be with you uh, just these these few short times. And I'm very excited for you and excited for Scott to be here as soon as possible. Is it two weeks? Is that that remembering correctly? That's exciting news. And I know that uh, he will be blessed uh, in many of the same ways that I have been to come and be a part of, of you. And I'm jealous, of course, of him that he gets to spend even more time with you when he gets here. Uh, uh, probably good advice uh, if you're going to, to preach, and maybe especially if you're going to preach to a group of people that you may not know that well to avoid political issues. But I can't resist this morning. So if I offend you, I'm sorry. It's not what I intend to do. I don't know if you've been following the news of the, uh, out of Gainesville, Florida this week, but for me it's been very heartbreaking to watch what is played out there. Once again, as in Charlottesville, South Carolina, white supremacists gathered for a rally, reveling in their shared bigotry and spewing hate toward anyone that they deem an outsider or a newcomer to what they consider a white nation. And if you listen to their message, which I try to do, I think it's largely based on fear. You see the country changing, as many of us do, they see themselves losing power and influence that they've taken for granted for so long, and they're clinging to what they have left and grasping to gain back what they fear that they are losing. They feel ignored. They feel disrespected. They feel marginalized in our current climate, and they've decided that it's time to do something about it. It's time to fight for their interests rather than remain silent. When I see that, to me, it's a picture of the broken human inclination. That, if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that we all share. When we feel something being taken from us, we lash out in fear and cling to it by any means necessary. That's part of what I see happening there. Now, in Gainesville, the protesters were ready for the white supremacists. They weren't going to allow it to become another Charlottesville, and so they organized early and showed up in large numbers in order to overpower the rally. They met force with force. They had their own banners and their own chants and met hate with hate in an attempt to silence and shame those with whom they disagreed. On the one hand, of course, I'm glad that other people showed up to resist the message of the white supremacists. On the other hand, I'm brokenhearted once again to see our broken human condition on display too often in an attempt to overcome our enemy we become like our enemies it's for a good cause we tell ourselves but is it worth the cost if we combat hate with hate or violence with violence have we done anything to rid the world of hate or violence but this is the pattern that's the cycle that we find ourselves playing out again and again. If not at a rally in Gainesville, then in relationships closer to home, at work, in our families, in our churches. And it's heartbreaking. It makes us cry out, How long, Lord, until you finally heal our brokenness once and for all? How long until you finally reign unopposed and set the world right? How long until you bring peace? Shalom, until everything is as you would have it be from the moment that you created it all, good and beautiful. You know, the world in the first century Palestine was much different than ours in important ways, but I think they shared maybe this same sentiment. How long, Lord, until you make everything right? Israel, your elect children, are suffering from Roman occupation and oppression. We're splintered and fighting among ourselves for what little power Rome deigns to give us. The leadership is corrupt, the the poor are ignored. And what hope is there that things can get better? And it's in this setting that Jesus conducts his ministry. It's in this setting that Jesus turns to his disciples on the road and asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are Messiah well what might Peter have in mind when he announces that Jesus is the Messiah or it might say in your translations when he says that Jesus is the Christ might be helpful to know a little bit about those words Christ and Messiah are synonyms the Greek word Christ and the Hebrew word Messiah both mean anointed one so what might Peter have in mind when he calls Jesus the anointed one What is he thinking of? Well, of course, we can't get into Peter's mind. But we have some good clues, I think, from the the stories of Israel uh, that we find in the rest of the Bible. In Israel's history, several different figures were occasionally anointed with oil. Priests, for example, were anointed as a symbol of their consecration. Their anointing marked their move from, from the realm of the common and the profane to the holy and the pure. Prophets also were occasionally anointed to mark out their prophetic calling. But I think when anyone talked about the anointed one, they were most likely talking about the king. For example, to mark Saul as the first king of Israel, the prophet Samuel took a bottle of oil and poured it on his head and then kissed him. And then Samuel told Saul, The Lord has anointed you ruler over his people. You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their enemies all around. Then, just a couple chapters later, Samuel marks David. In the same way, after determining that none of his brothers is the chosen one, Samuel finally compels Jesse to bring in his youngest child from tending sheep out in the field. And when Samuel sees David for the first time, we read that the Lord told him, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil, we're told, and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came on David in power. Note what these two stories tell us comes along with being the anointed one. Saul will reign. He will save Israel by vanquishing her enemies. David is filled with God's spirit and we are told that it comes on him in power. In both of these cases, when these men are anointed, they are lifted from obscurity and empowered to reign over Israel, empowered to unite Israel and lead her against her enemies in victory. The psalmist in Psalm 89 recalls God, God's choice to make David his anointed. And listen to the language that he uses to talk about this moment. This is in Psalm 89, picking up in verse 19. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed, bestowed strength on a warrior, I have raised up a young man from among the people, I have found David my servant. With, uh, with my sacred oil I have anointed him. With my hand I will sustain him. My arm will strengthen him. No enemy will get the better of him. No wicked person will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him and through my name his strength, his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea his right hand over the rivers he will call out to me you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior and I will appoint him to be my firstborn the most exalted of the kings of the earth and I will maintain my love to him forever my covenant with him will never fail I will establish his line forever his throne as long as the heavens endure those are God's words to David when he anoints him he's going to strengthen him to be a warrior who will make sure that no enemy can stand, no adversary can avoid being crushed. So who is David, the anointed, a warrior strengthened by God, before whom enemies will flee or be crushed? He is the most exalted of all earthly kings. Now, the psalmist appears to be writing in the days and years after the reign of David. And so he recognizes that it didn't quite turn out in all the ways that they would hoped it would. When it comes to David, and so, as he continues to read, we see that, that david didn 't quite live up to what God uh, what God uh, promised that he would do through him. if we pick up in verse thirty eight and read from there, but you, now the psalmist is speaking to God, you have rejected you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. you have renounced the covenant with your servant, and have defiled his crown in the dust, you have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? So we see this, this, this longing maybe in that last verse. With that last painful plea, the psalmist holds out hope for the future. God's covenant with David did not meet the initial expectations. They weren't fulfilled in the way they understood God's promises to David, but they trust that God will continue to be faithful to his anointed. And one day, a descendant of David will come and assume his empty throne. One day, God will once again lift his servant from obscurity to anoint him, empowering him to crush foes and strike down adversaries. And maybe this is what Peter has in mind when he makes his confession. So far in the gospel, the disciples have been a little slow to recognize the extent of Jesus' power, and we've seen this. When, for a second time, Jesus calms the winds on the sea, they are just as shocked as the first time. And when, for the second time, they find themselves in a deserted place with Jesus and a large crowd, it's like they weren't there the first time. They are just as puzzled about where they might find food to feed this crowd, and just as amazed when they collect basketfuls of leftovers after the miracle. And even immediately after this second miraculous feeding, they are on a boat. And we hear that they're worried that one loaf won't be enough for their small group. Jesus, at this point, gets a little frustrated and initiates a short review session, we might call it, for the disciples. Pick it up in verse 18 of of chapter 8. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, "'Why are you talking about having no bread?' And as as an audience, we're wondering the same thing, right? Why are they worried about having no bread? Weren't they there when there was 5,000 people who were fed? Weren't they there when there was 4,000 people who were uh, fed? And now they're worried about bread. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Surely not you, Jesus seems to be asking. Surely you're not the ones whose hearts will be hardened. Do you have eyes but fail to see? you have ears but fail to hear? And, and, and don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Uh, Twelve. They sheepishly replied. I put it in the sheepishly part. That's how I think it went. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Uh, they answered, seven. And they said to them, do you still not understand they've been a little slow and in some ways in the story that follows right after this peter is finally connecting the dots when he recognized that jesus is the messiah he's finally drawing some of the right conclusions from the things that he's witnessed jesus do he's finally catching on to maybe who jesus is look at the powerful things he's done he is he must be yes the messiah And not a moment too soon, with Israel suffering under Roman oppression and Judea splintering into competing factions, the whole thing feels like it might all just fall apart. But now, the Messiah has come. God's anointed one will reign and unite Israel. In some ways, Peter is finally connecting the dots. He gets the title right. Unfortunately, it's more complicated than that. Even though he's using the right words, he doesn't know what it will look like for Jesus. Jesus to be the anointed one. Jesus has in mind a new anointing. Jesus' anointing won't mean enthronement, at least not in the traditional sense. In Mark chapter 14, a couple chapters from where we are now, Jesus is literally anointed, and it leaves the disciples baffled and scandalized. As Jesus is eating dinner with his disciples, a woman appears with an alabaster jar full of expensive perfume. And she breaks the jar and pours the perfume over his head. The language is reminiscent of David's anointing. But the setting and the meaning is different. The disciples are angered at her wastefulness. But Jesus rebukes them. She has done a beautiful thing, Jesus tells them. She has anointed me, For burial. Anointed for burial. That's not what anointing means. It was too much for Judas, evidently. It's at this moment that he goes to the chief priests to betray Jesus. Jesus had tried to prepare them, of course, for this moment. As soon as Peter identifies him as Messiah, Jesus speaks openly about his new anointing, about what it will look like. He will suffer many things... Be rejected by everyone who means anything, and finally be killed. He will be raised, exalted, and enthroned and empowered, but, but not until after he empties himself. And this is not what Peter had in mind, evidently. When Peter imagines the Messiah, I think he thinks of power, victory, liberation, restoration, and Jesus is talking about suffering, rejection, death. And so he takes Jesus aside. I don't know what he said when he rebuked him. I imagine it was something like this. Maybe you were absent that day in Torah school, Jesus. But the Messiah doesn't die when he goes to Jerusalem. The Messiah ascends to the throne to lead God's people. And Jesus' response is swift and severe. Get behind me, Satan. Wow. Wow pretty strong language I mean I know Peter and the disciples are a little bit dim but devilish Satan isn't this a little extreme we have heard about Satan a couple times already so far in the gospel of Mark he's the one who tempts Jesus in the wilderness in the opening chapter Mark doesn't give us any details about the temptation but Matthew and Luke provide a little bit more information and tell us that Satan tempted Jesus with fame and power Is Peter here guilty of presenting Jesus once again with this tempting path to victory? Satan also appears in Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the soils. He's the one who snatches away the word before it can take root in the soil. Jesus is trying to sow the seed, trying to plant the truth and the values of the kingdom of God in his hearers, but another set of values, another truth sweeps in and steals it away before it can take root. This may be a little bit closer, I think, to the issue with Peter. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. He's trying to teach us and ultimately to show us how to live on God's terms. What does it look like in the kingdom of God? And Peter can't let go of living on human terms. Man, we know all about living on human terms, right? I see it on display every time I go with my family to Jason's Deli. Do you guys have a Jason's Deli in San Angelo? You don't. You guys seem to have all the other restaurants we don't have. Well, Jason's Deli, if you've never been to one, is uh, a deli. And it's got a salad bar. And the salad bars are very nice salad bar. And on that salad bar are what my kids call brownies. I think they're brand muffins, actually. Uh, But they're, you know, they're a dark color and they're sweet, so they think they're brownies. So whenever we go to Jason's Deli, I always go through the salad bar and get, you know, a plate with some brownies on it and bring it to the table so they can snack on those while they wait for their food. And inevitably, right, every time I set down that plate of brownies with my three kids there, you can imagine what happens, right? Claws come out, elbows are being thrown, they're trying to grab as many of those brownies as they can before their brother or sister gets them. I've got to get mine before it's gone. That's living life on human terms. Because that's so often how we think the world works. That's so often how we see it works. I've got to get mine before somebody else does, otherwise I'm going to be in need. I'm going to be in want. And the holy trinity of my wants, my needs, my desires is what directs my actions. I try to tell my kids, there's a lot more brownies up there. You don't have to do this. I'll give you more. Isn't that what God tries to tell us? You don't have to live that way. But that's living on human terms. James, if we look to James, describes it as a wisdom from below. In James chapter three, verses 13 and following, he talks about two different kinds of wisdom. He asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. Then James says, if you have bitter envy... And selfish ambition in your hearts do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. Envy, ambitious, ambition, competition, striving. That looks like wisdom from below. That looks like my kids with the brownies at Jason's Deli get behind me Satan indeed God's life on the other hand looks much much different for all eternity God has been engaged in a relationship of self-giving self-emptying love between the Father Son and Spirit a way of life that took flesh in Jesus who emptied himself to the point of death on a cross. But even as the Son emptied Himself in love for us and devotion to the Father, the Father poured His life into the Son, leaving the tomb empty. It's a very different pattern of life, God's terms. When James talks about the wisdom from above, after talking about the wisdom from below, in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says this, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, Willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. That's the wisdom from above. That's living on God's terms. Gentleness, peacefulness, a willingness to yield to the other. God is certainly powerful, but his power doesn't follow the human pattern. It isn't, isn't a power from above that, that oppresses and, and dominates and, and rules over us. His power is a power from below that lifts us up, lifts up the lowly and empowers the powerless. When we live on human terms, that the cycle never ends. Envy and ambition cannot be satisfied. They are the never-ending hamster wheel. The world can't be made right through violence. Jesus says, even violence for a good cause, it just breeds more violence. We meet force with force and we must become like our enemy in order to overpower our enemy. We throw off our oppressor only to ourselves become the oppressor who must one day be overthrown. God doesn't play on these terms. He doesn't win win in the end because he proves to be better at this game than anyone else. No, he plays a different game. No, he overcomes his enemy by finally breaking this cycle Jesus teaches us this way in the sermon on the mount you have heard that it was said eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth but I tell you do not resist an evil person if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to them the other cheek also and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt hand over your coat as well if anyone forces you to go one mile go with them two miles Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from those who want to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors are doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. When Jesus calls us to be perfect, like our heavenly Father, I don't think he has in mind a kind of stringently clean purity. God is that, of course. But here what he's talking about is a perfection of love. A love that extends both to the friend and the enemy. A love that is poured out despite the cost to yourself. That's living on God's terms. We all know, though, that living on human terms seems so efficient, so effective, so satisfying in the short term. It's the quick way to the top. God's way of self-giving and self-emptying seems like a recipe for defeat. It ends in the cross, after all. So, maybe we can understand Peter's struggle to embrace Jesus' counterintuitive message. Maybe we need to ask how are we doing in our relationships? Which pattern do we follow at work or at school? Which pattern do we follow at home with our spouse? What does it look like when we exert power? Does it look like God's empowering, self giving power from below? Or something more dominating? After Jesus rebukes Peter, he calls the crowd along with the disciples to try to explain again what God's way looks like. The disciples are are struggling to understand. They're struggling to see everything clearly. And so Jesus is going to put his hands on them one more time and hope that they can be healed from their blindness. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. They'll find life. So what does it look like for you to take up your cross? What, what does it look like to live on God's terms? To adopt a, pa- a posture of risky, self-emptying love in a world still operating on human terms? I want to close with one provocative example. Last week in Gainesville, Florida, among the crowd of white supremacists was a man named Randy Furness, who came wearing a white t shirt with black swastikas stenciled all over it. And he was there along with the other people at the rally, yelling and screaming and chanting. And as we've noted, in many ways, this white nationalism represents the devilish wisdom from below. The movement feeds on fear based on the perceived loss of power which prompts people to cling fiercely to whatever power they still have while they try to violently win back the power they've lost. Well, when news of the rally spread across town, a black man named Aaron Courtney decided to join those protesting the group. And after about four hours protesting against the white supremacists at the rally, he was about to leave when he saw a skirmish break out around Randy Furnace. Other protesters were screaming at Randy, spitting on him and even punching him. Following that human pattern, they were becoming like the enemy in order to overcome the enemy. But it doesn't work. It just perpetuates the cycle. When Aaron approached Randy, he had a choice. As he explained it, I could have hit him. I could have hurt him. Certainly, lots of other people were around him. But something in me said... You know what? He just needs love. And after asking him multiple times, why do you hate me? And getting no response, Aaron changed tactics. He decided that Randy needed, most of all, a hug. Now, Randy obviously initially resisted this hug, but after about three attempts, he finally gave in, let Aaron wrap his arms around him and embraced him in return. And when Aaron asked one more time, Why do you hate me? Randy finally answered, I don't know. And the cycle cracked just a little, and the light of the kingdom of God streamed through the fissure. Jesus asked two questions. In the section of the gospel that we looked at today, and I think we need to hear them. We need to answer them. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks us. And even after we've answered, even if we find the right words to use to answer that question, we need to hear his other question that he asks his disciples after a review session of all that he's done Do you not yet understand? Even if we get the right words, do we know what that means? Do we know what that means for us who will be his followers? I want to encourage you, in the weeks to come, we're going to continue to look at the chapters that follow uh, Peter's confession here in chapter eight, and we'll see Jesus time and time again try to show them what it looks like for him to be the Messiah, and then by extension, what it's going to mean for them to be his followers. This morning, if you haven't already done so, I invite you to lose your life in baptism to share in Jesus's new anointing to experience the life of his self-giving self-emptying love and for those of us who have already gone through the waters of baptism let us remember the words of Paul I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me